Well, good evening and welcome to this live stream on the 20th of January 2024. Martin North from Digital Finance Analysis here. Great to have you on tonight. And the um, conversation, of course, is all about property and specifically the conundrum of the property ladder. Just before I bring Veronica in, let me just remind you, as I always do, that this is a general conversation only. This is not a specific property or financial or legal conversation. This is a general conversation. Do please play nice in the chat room and uh, I encourage you to throw your thoughts and comments into the chat. And, uh, you know, as with always, I may not follow every thread of the conversation because there's a lot of stuff that goes on, but never, nevertheless, uh, throw those comments in. Um, if you'd like to ask a specific question to Veronica, then use at what the world, and that'll make sure it comes into my question queue and uh, good chance of uh, getting your question answered then. And I've also enabled Super Chat, which means that you can get your question to the list or indeed make a contribution to what we do around here. Don't do this for profit. We do this because we think it's a really important conversation. So all those Super Chat contributions are absolutely greatly received. Right. I'm going to push this button. And Veronica, hello. How are you doing? Hello. Good. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Uh, we had a chat just before uh, Christmas, which I went, I think, went out on an elephant in the room um, around Christmas time. So I hope that went well, but uh, I enjoyed that conversation and uh, nice that you can return the favour now. Oh, well, I'm always um, flattered to be asked on your show, Martin. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> and well, Alice's love you. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's uh, just uh, in introduce you for those who may not know. Um, I always have great difficulty, Veronica, because you've got so many irons in so many fires, right? So um, just give give people the the, the, the two-minute whistle-stop tour of what you do and, and, you know, what you're involved in, because I, I just get more and more confused. You've got so much going on. I know. It's getting a bit stupid, really. Um Okay, so the best way to uh, introduce me is a licensed real estate agent who puts together programs to help people buy better. Uh, but it actually extends beyond that now. We're helping people sell better as well. Uh, we'll get to helping people rent better as well. But the reality is that buying property is fraught with risk and that I don't think there's enough uh, appreciation for just how risky being in the property game is. And so really my goal is to help people make better decisions so that they take less risk and actually allow the property to do what it needs to do for them, whether it be wealth creation or providing a stable home, uh, shelter, all that sort of stuff. That's my goal. Everything I do is about helping people do that. And what I think is fascinating, Veronica, is that you and I have exactly the same objective, which is to help people make better decisions, right? And, mm -hmm. and you know, you, you come at it from the, the, the property end and, you know, a, a significant positivity around property. I come slightly from the more sceptical end. But in both cases, we meet at the middle here and it's about helping people make better decisions. I'm not anti-property, right? But what I am worried about is that many people seem to me to make bad decisions and in fact, I still believe that sometimes people spend more time researching a refrigerator, you know, buying a new fridge than buying a new property, which seems to me nuts in the current environment. Well, they do. And and it goes to human behaviour that when something is very, very complex, we just seek to simplify it. And so in and what happens with property often is that in that process of simplification, uh, people actually end up doing almost no due diligence or really refusing to accept that the risks are as high as they are. So 
you know, where I come at it from is as a as a practitioner in the industry, I've had you know, 24 years experience now, either selling or buying property uh, for clients and, and obviously for myself as well. And I'm one of these property experts who actually doesn't believe that property is for everybody in terms of, I don't think everybody should be buying property. I don't think everybody should be investing in property. I absolutely do not think that property works for everyone. In fact, I think the very small percentage of property is actually really worth buying from an investment point of view. So I'm, I'm almost, I'm a contrarian property person, Martin, you know, I, people have accused me (laughs) being negative. (laughs) But I did. I must say, the first time I came across you, I thought, "Oh my God, I couldn't find anybody more negative." But I've got to understand you more, and I realise where it's coming from. Yeah, absolutely. And um, we're going to talk specifically about the conundrum of the the property ladder. And it's mm. interesting because I have seen a lot of people write a lot of stuff in recent times about the property ladder, right? And I guess my own experience, I mean, I bought my first property years and years ago. I paid the equivalent of, of 16,000 Aussie dollars for my first property, right? <laughs> and, and, you know, through happenstance and then moving and uh, all of those things, you know, the value and the equity in the property expanded. It didn't go up linearly, so you know, but it did go up to, up and to the right over a significant number of years. I did lose money, so in some cases I sold below what I bought, but in the long term the trend is up and to the right. Now, I guess the question I've got for you is, is the property ladder still a valid way of thinking about property? Um, it seems to me that the the first step on the on on the rung is almost impossible for many many people these days, particularly first time mm. buyers. And so we're going to try and get practical about some of those those things that people can do to sort of make that step up. But then the other question is, you know, are we kidding ourselves that th- th- this this property story is always going to be up to the right? Um, how do you think about it? Uh, I think that on a macro, yes, property goes up. Over time, it does. I mean, you, you've got all the data to show, I think, on average, something like 8% annualised growth Australian property, right? The problem is, of course, that no one buys a, a piece of the Australian property market. They buy one property out of how many have you got? 10 million of them or 11 million of them. And so your decision on that one out of 11 million properties has to be spot on. Otherwise, you could lose money, and there is a uh, there is a report that CoreLogic puts out every quarter. It's called the Pain and Gain Report, and it actually reports on how many people, what percentage of people lost money when they sold property uh, in that quarter. And that's just a nominal loss, you know, purchase price versus sale price. If you dig b- below that uh, at, and say that's plus or minus ten percent, um, if you dig deeper into the into the figures there, you'll realize that that a hell of a lot of people, if they uh, calculated all the, the the cost of ownership, the purchasing costs, the selling costs, all the rest of it, um, would have lost money in real terms. But not only that, there's a lot of people holding property that if they had to sell would be would would lose money. So there's no accurate data for that. But I would say that the accurate data on nominal losses, ten percent plus or minus, right on on average. Um, if you add in, you know, you could guess it could double. That figure could double if they just Factored in things like stamp duty, selling costs, and renovation costs could double, you know. So the fact is it's a risky thing to do to get onto the property ladder. 
And so the latter is there, right? It's a myth and a real thing in a way, right? So when I say a myth and a real thing, we have a bit of a problem at the moment. As property gets more and more expensive in Australia, the gap between those poor performers and the high performers gets wider. And the reason is the magic or the, what's the opposite of magic? Black magic or white magic of compounding, right? So if you've got a property that's, showing compound growth at, say, it's average 5% per annum versus one that's showing compound growth of average uh, 6% per annum or one that's at, say, 3% per annum, the gap between the good performer and the bad performer widens over time. So the problem with the property ladder is that if you buy a poor performer to get on the ladder and you seek to upgrade to a better performer over time, the longer you leave it, the gap between your property growth in price and a better property growth in price gets bigger and bigger. And by function of the size of or the value of property, so like a $100,000 property, for example, if it grows at the same rate as a million-dollar property, you're still going to have a gap, right? But when you've got one that underperforms versus one that overperforms, that gap gets even bigger. And so this the, the property ladder it runs on a premise of you getting on the bottom rung and then, you know, nice evenly spaced rungs as you climb it, right, as you move through life and you and you get more income and, and, you know, you get more equity, et cetera, et cetera, you should better climb that quite easily. But it doesn't actually work like that in practice because if you don't get a firm rung, you might stay there or you might fall off it in total and never get back on it. Um, if you can't manage that increasing gap between what you've got and the next property, then you may never climb that ladder. And some people that might be a decision uh, that they're only ever going to be able to get on rung one, and it might be that they don't live in it for a while, they keep it as an investment. There's, there's lots of ways to look at this. It might be a decision, but always the caliber of that property has to be as good as you could possibly get. And so I'm not saying you have to buy a multi-million dollar property uh, up front. I'm saying that in every property class and every pro in every price range in every area, there are great properties and there are not great properties. And so if you learn the art of asset selection and you get a firm footing on that rung, uh, on that ladder, that first rung on the ladder, then your chance of being able to climb the ladder are a hell of a lot better than if you fail at the first rung. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think, you know, your analogy of the ladder not being equally spaced <laughs> there was the rungs, you know, it's not like every three years you automatically go up to the next ladder rung, et cetera, et cetera. And at the moment, you know, the gap between those those points on the ladder are, are pretty dramatic for, for many people. Yeah. And, um, you know, just to, in that context, it, it's interesting to, to, to note um, – to note three things. Obviously, you know, if you look at the trends on prices, um, what you can see there is that actually houses and units are moving in different directions at the moment. So actually house moves and median value of rent uh, in the in the in the uh, unit sector are, are performing quite quite differently. And um, another way of looking at it here is just the uh, you know the move of prices from December 2003 and, and you know you can see there that there has been a, a general trend up but nevertheless 
the, the fact is that not all markets have moved the same way over that period of time. Mm. So Sydney has, um, you know, done a lot more than, than than others. Darwin, if you look there, has sort of gone significantly down and is back to where it was, um, you know, in 2008 to 2012. Um, Perth, of course, accelerating now, but for quite a long period didn't accelerate much. So it shows you that, that the, you know, the universal truths are actually quite important to understand that, that prices tend to go up and to the right, but not, not, not in a linear fashion. And um, just one other, this, this is the one that I think is a really interesting killer slide. This is actually from a recent per capita report that just showed how much government money is being thrown into property. This includes the capital gains tax, the um, negative gearing support, the uh, rental assistance, other budget measures. And you can see that we've we, you know, massive amounts of, of money is being thrown into the property system by, this is the federal stuff, plus as well, states. So when you think about property, you've got to think about it in the context of picking the right asset, but also some of these broader issues. And finally, just in terms of affordability, it's worth just noting, of course, that if you look at the um, impost on households, whilst the interest payments on mortgages have actually significantly risen, actually the income tax payments have actually risen even more, and in fact, is a bigger impost. So again, I, I want to highlight, um, you know, that there is a complexity here, just in terms of trying to put all of these pieces of the puzzle together. And, and so, if you are trying to aspire to get on on the property ladder, right, this is not a simple, straightforward thing. And, and what I find a little bit frustrating is sometimes those in the property industry make it sound as though it's such an easy journey. Um, and I'm of the view that it can be easier, but it can be often harder. And for some people, as you say, it might even be impossible. Well, interestingly enough, in, in Home Buyer Academy, which is um, my partnership with Megan Wells, she's a Brisbane-based buyers agent, and we've got uh, an online course for first home buyers called your first home buyer guide and we have a bunch of principles that we have in that that we follow and one of them is that if it's easy to buy it's probably going to be hard to sell and you talk about a lot of people in the property industry trying to say how easy it is and there's various you know various uh strategies of hope shall we say or wishful thinking that are, that are, that are pushed out there and buying off the plan is easy you know, buying a house and land package is pretty much easy. Um, buying anything when it comes to property that is easy is actually a problem for you in the long run because always when you're buying property, you have to be thinking about who is my future buyer. One day, and if you particularly if you're thinking about being on the property ladder, you've got to be thinking, I need to understand who my buyer is, how many of them are out there in the sense of do I have a property that has wide buyer appeal? not something that's only going to appeal to someone like me only. And in fact, a lot of the properties that are marketed at first home buyers by a lot of people in the property industry and are easy to buy, actually the secondary market doesn't exist because they're pitched at first home buyers. So they're, they're given incentives to buy brand new. And you've got to be thinking, so I go to sell it when I want to upgrade, right? Want a bigger home, whatever. Um, who am I, who's going to buy it? Well, not, no one like me is going to buy it because everyone like me is going to be trying to use the government handout and they won't get one for this house because it won't be brand new anymore. Well, I know an investor might buy it. Well, no, they won't 
because any investors looking at that type of stock is going to be looking at the maximum negative gearing, maximum depreciation. That's not good. That's not investment advice coming from me. It's just the way some people operate, the way they think about it. It is faulty, but you know, accountants will help them make these decisions. Um, they go and buy these properties because they get maximum depreciation and then there's no secondary investor market for that because subsequent investors don't get the same level of depreciation because even if it's a week old, it a lot of that depreciation uh, and the tax benefits actually evaporate. So there's two big um, buyer pools that are that are definitely targeted and attracted to brand new property and none of them exist when those people go to resell the property and they're not thinking about that. I and mean, this is what buyers always need to be thinking about. It doesn't matter what you're buying, whether you're buying brand new, whether you're buying existing, you always have to be thinking about how can I make sure that this property, when I go to sell it, will appeal, appeal to the widest section of the market, the widest segment of the market. And that's how you shore up your your future or, you know, that's that's your risk, uh, your risk mitigation strategy, basically. And I think the concept when you're thinking of buying a property, asking yourself at the same time, is it a, a property that could be sold? <laughs> it almost seems counterintuitive, but actually it's exactly. the dead right question to ask because I've seen so many people make really bad purchasing decisions where, you know, for example, you know, you mentioned off the plan apartments and, uh, you know, I, I am really, really frustrated with the, the state of off the plan apartments in Australia. Um, we've had so many um, badly constructed, um, I've made a few shows on this recently, you know, but quite a few people went in and bought because that's pretty much all they could afford. And, mm. you know, they thought, well, you know, it's, it's a new property, so therefore it's going to be reasonably easy to maintain, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, except that there's a million others exactly the same. So when you come to think about who's going to buy it from me later, you suddenly realise that you're competing with a huge, huge market where so many other people are also potentially trying to dispose of property. And then the other point yeah. that you, I, I want to underscore again, you talked about asset depreciation. You know, a new property drops in value as soon as you turn the key in the door and move in, right? It doesn't automatically start going up from that point because next door or down the road or in the next um, block or in the next home and land package, there's new stuff that people can trade um, with, which means that that will actually put a cramp on initial price appreciation. And that's something else that a lot of people haven't actually got their head around either. 100%. And, and some of these subdivisions, they go for decade, you know, for go, they go for a decade. So that's 10 years, potentially, you're going to be sitting on no growth or negative growth. And, you know, you just got to hope that your life circumstances don't change, because you're trapped, if if they do. And, and everyone is so focused on, we talked about the ease of buying property, right? Everyone is so focused on how difficult it is to save your deposit and get on the ladder. That's this desperation. To, I want to be on the ladder. I want to be on the ladder. But they don't think of what happens if I buy like, a, I don't know, a termite-ridden rung on that ladder. You know what I mean? It's the equivalent of buying one with wood, wood rot. You can't stand on it. Uh, it's like, you know, you're definitely not going to climb up that ladder if you can't actually stand on the first rung. Um, and so, you know, and 
it's compelling and I get why it's compelling. You know, in fact, Megan and I, we just recorded a podcast episode on, on house and land packages because we know that first home buyers are compelled towards it. You know, so it's like we've, we've, when are we going? I'll probably will be launched in a couple of weeks, this podcast episode. Um, we know that they're going to be compelled towards it because all the marketing, all the mortgage brokers, basically, most mortgage brokers should go and they say, okay, well, these are all the grants you can get and these are all the developments and blah, 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 blah. In fact, a lot of them are peddling brand new properties and they get paid huge commissions. I just delete, I just unsubscribed from, a, from an email uh, that was sent to me and we get this all the time by you know by the way you know all these brand new houses and the commission offering up to $38,000 to help them sell a brand new house worth around about 700,000 so you talk about you know when you drive the car out the out the showroom or you turn the key in the lock it's immediately worth less well it's immediately worth at least that less than you just paid because you've just built in nearly $40,000 worth of commissions to a salesperson. Um, that property is not worth that. That's that's the price. That's uh, I can't explain how, you know, a, a value of a property and the price of the property, two very different things, you know. So when you go and buy a brand new, they set a price and all the, all the lemmings run along and pay that price. When you go to sell it, it is not that easy. It's actually horrific and and that is a really horrible, shocking situation that some people find themselves in. If they find, you know, they, they lose their jobs or interest rate rises um, so sudden if they really hadn't hadn't any buffers or family support or perhaps they got a divorce, you know, there's things, life happens and people that are forced to sell, I've heard lots and lots of sad stories about people really losing a lot of money and they're not being able to get back on the property ladder. So this first rung is so important. Absolutely. And um, the transaction costs, so, you know, whether it's stamp duty or solicitor's fees or the other things that you need to do. you know, Selling costs selling costs as well mm. they are significant as well so you know you've always got to remember that that takes a slice off whatever equity you you've created um yeah. and i guess one of the problems that i see quite often is the story from the um agents you know particularly in these um high-rise apartments where they guarantee rental income for the first two years and things like that right yeah. what happens in year three <laughs> Right? I mean, it's it's all about trying to make the marketing spin work, but it is marketing spin. And I, I guess, Veronica, my question to you is, how do you separate the spin from reality? You know, what, what's the sort of the mentality that you need to um, align to to be able to make sure that you aren't being sucked in? Well, you need to be a critical thinker, and I, and I presume everybody watching your DFA live, you know, might be in the category of being able to pull apart uh, the spin and and start to look at what the facts are. And I think, you know, look, I, I think probably the most, the first thing you could do is actually read a pain and gain report from CoreLogic because you actually then look into that and you say, well, what, what are the properties that lose the most money for people? And it's the first time sale, resale of an apartment. That is by far the biggest single group of properties in Australia that loses money or that 
that their owners lose money on. And so evidence, there's heaps and heaps of evidence that people lose money. Even when prices are rising, you know, when the market as a whole is rising, people, if they buy in certain markets, can lose money. You know, Brisbane, for 10 years, apartments went backwards whilst, you know, Sydney market was rising, you know, Melbourne market was rising, even the Brisbane market and houses started rising in that time. And yet if you bought an apartment in Brisbane and people are charging, you know, chasing affordable uh, investments, often go and do that. They're all running over to Perth at the moment. Um, then, you know, that they're sitting there and their equity is tied up, their borrowing capacity is tied up, they're paying a mortgage um, and they're going backwards. Now, a lot of these rental guarantees, are, they're sort of offered to de-risk it for people. Oh, it's no risk because you're going to get this amount of rent every week, blah, blah, blah. Now, when the property market, when the rental market was what we call normal, when it, it uh, not like it is at the moment, we've got these drastic shortages, but when we had a sort of more normal rental market, as soon as that period ended, then the rents will go to market rent. You know, so if they were getting $400 a week rent on a property that was only worth $350 a week rent, once the guarantee goes, and, and not only that, but the guarantee was built into the price you paid. So you already prepaid for the extra rent you were getting, right? So that's fine. There's a problem at the moment with our rental shortage the way it is, is that high rents are going to mask a lot of this fundamental problem with some of these properties, and so people are going to be lulled into a false sense of security because it's easy to rent out pretty much anything now, uh, particularly, I mean, I mean, look at Sydney. I'm based in Sydney, so I can talk about the Sydney. But, you know, you've got a vacancy, I think, in, in Perth, for example, at the moment is like 0.7% or something. Um, so, so the rental market is such that people could be fooled into thinking they've got a good asset because they're getting a good yield. And, but, you know, pretty much everything's getting good yield at the moment. So it's taking away the discernment or that a level of pain that people might have, um, which might get them to offload property. And if you look at the, the areas where properties were most sold recently, now there's a number of reasons for investors selling properties, but one, for example, one market is Brisbane. Now you could uh, attribute some of this, and in fact, I think there's been research done that says we can attribute some of it to some pretty uninvest or investor unfriendly legislation and um, attitude of the government up there. Uh, so that certainly led people to offload their properties. But also, if you have sat on one of those properties that has done nothing or gone backwards for ten years, then suddenly you see a bit of price growth. You're going to take your opportunity to get the hell out of there. So there's been some markets where there's been increased selling. And a lot of those investors have been people who have sat there just waiting, waiting, waiting for those properties to do something so that they can get out of them. Now, there's opportunity costs and all that time that those people have not been doing something, they could, that money that's been tied up there could have been working harder somewhere else. And a lot of people don't want to realize that loss at any point. So they sit there waiting till they get a gain. They feel better about that. Human beings, we don't always make good decisions because we're biased, got our biases. Um, but that is one of the realities and that that is actually uh, one of the factors that has led to you know a lot of investment stock being sold because it hasn't performed. No. Uh, so, but however, now you will find that, you know, with such big rental increases, People might go, oh, it's all right now. It's performing because they're looking at the wrong metrics. But, you know, it, it can uh, 
cover off a, a number of sins, I would say, the strong rental market at the moment? Well, certainly if you look at gross rental yields, which is, if you like, the price of the property relative to the theoretical rent that you can actually yeah. get, those two things have definitely gone up. But if you look at the net rental yield, which is effectively after the costs of the mortgage and maintenance of the property, et cetera, et cetera, in fact, there are more investors today underwater, partly because, of course, their own mortgage rates have gone up quite dramatically, even after all the tax offsets and everything else. Um, yeah. And if you look at it on a geographic basis, if you look at the net investment yields in Melbourne and the around surrounding areas, about 60 to 65% are now underwater. If you go up to mm. Queensland, it's a different story. Up in Queensland, the um, you know the calculus is quite different. So it shows you again that different types of property in different locations are behaving quite differently. But this theoretical gross rental yield, which is the one that the agents always throw at everybody, right, doesn't really tell you the full story, does it? No, it doesn't. And also, do you calculate the yield as to your own yield based on what you paid for it, or do you calculate it on what it would sell for, what market value for that property is today anyway? You know, so I always laugh at this rubbery figure, yield. Mm, how are we how are we calculating this? <laughs> um, but also, you know, Victoria is another state that has had some pretty investor unfriendly uh, policies. And so, in fact, that's been that's been one state where there's been quite a lot of sales. But you also got to think that the median prices in Victoria, well, let's say Melbourne, not Victoria, median price in Melbourne is more expensive than, than it has been in Brisbane. I think the dwelling uh, median has just pipped over the dwelling median for uh, for Melbourne, but dwellings include apartments and everything. Mm. Um which is sort of interesting, actually, that it's done that. But but despite that, Melbourne was a more expensive city. So people, you could expect, would have larger mortgages down there, you know, so they're going to be hit more uh, with rising interest rates. And and obviously when you've got uh, policies that are not very friendly towards investors and this land tax, you know, there's, there's lots of um, – and, and also legislation, pro-tenant legislation. Now, I'm all for – I'm all for looking after tenants, don't get me wrong, but it has to really, you have to, you know, it has to go hand in hand with understanding the demands placed on the owners of properties as well. And I don't think that there's enough understanding of that and meeting in the middle and coming to the table together. I think there's too much of this us and them going on. And that's that's a, a narrative that is that is quite prevalent. Uh, and it's still very prevalent about, you know, landlord bashing and, and investor bashing. And it just astounds me that people can't sort of get the linkage to understand that if we don't have a market that is uh, that is encouraging people to want to invest in property because the government hasn't done it in the la over the last seven decades, then, then what have we got to rent? And why else would rent be rising, you know, if there's a shortage of supply? You know, it just beggars belief that there's so much anti-investor rhetoric out there and they just not seem to understand that basic supply demand metric. No, spot on. Of course, uh, just put up this one. This is the um, net overseas migration data that shows we've had this massive splurge of migration, mm. which means, of course, that that's put extra demand specifically on the rental sector initially, which, by the way, is squeezing out some of the um, you know, the locals who can't, uh, can't afford to, uh, mm. to, keep, to keep paying. But interestingly, also in my surveys, the highest uh, rental stress metric is now in those first generation migrants. So they've come really? in and, yeah, and, and immediately have got sort of sucked into paying a lot more 
but finding it quite difficult to make those those payments. So so I think the point about understanding that property investment and renting and owning property are all part of one continuum rather than actually mm. seeing it as somehow disconnected is a really important point. And and to drive that home, um, I've got a few questions from 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 people who have thrown me questions recently. And this is from this is from Sonny, and he said he's actually based in Melbourne. I'm currently renting in Melbourne. My rents have gone up 15% last year, another 15% in six months' time, and it's going to continue. Um, he said, I've got, I've got limited ability to save because I'm paying so much on my, on my rent in the property that I'm renting. If I were to take what I'm paying in rent and pay that as a mortgage, I couldn't buy anywhere close to where I'm living at the moment. I have to buy a lot further out and I'd probably buy in an area that's um, not particularly attractive. And even that's after taking account of what support I can get from the various grants that are available. So the conundrum for, for this particular uh, in, individual with a family is saying, do I just go on you know, paying and paying and paying and just except that more and more of my rent is, you know, my income is going to pay the rent, which in a way is dead money? Or do mm. I actually make the sort of strategic decision to move somewhere less salubrious further out where I'm going to incur more transport costs, but try and get at least a foot on the property ladder? Or is there some other strategy that would enable me to get out of this bind that I'm in? That's basically the question. And I mean, for me, that's a really important microcosm of the problem. Yeah, it, it is. And look, you know, there's there's some really um, there's some interesting solutions coming up to help people get onto the ladder. All right now, um, and the shared equity scheme that the government, the Victorian government, has a shared equity scheme. The federal government is about to launch one, I do believe. Um, these are interesting schemes and there's a private shared equity scheme um, coming up as well, which we're interviewing on Home Borrow Academy, so we'll be finding out a lot more about that shortly. These, these are schemes that basically a government or uh, an investor group effectively takes a, a part ownership in the property and so they help you get on into the market. Now, there's ways of doing this. Um, some people would... Uh, I guess I'm trying to sort of how to explain this. So say say for argument's sake, you've only saved a small deposit, you 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 know, and you could qualify for the the federal government's five uh, percent deposit guarantee scheme, which I know has a different name now, but I can never keep up with their changes of names. Right. So the government says, all oh, right, well, you don't have to pay pay lenders mortgage insurance. We'll actually effectively guarantee uh, your loan, and so that's great. But you've got to have an income that could support 95% and, and you've got to have the 5% plus the costs um, and you've got to have an income that can support a big loan on a property, right? And obviously with interest rates rising, borrowing capacities fall every time there's an interest rate rise. Um, that's a and – and then that's capped actually is an income capped. So there's an immediate squeeze on who can access that and where they can buy. So, so that's sort of one – um, way to get people on the on the ladder quicker, right? And in rising prices, when prices are rising, 
you know, time is money, right? You can't outsave the market. So you've got to try to get into the market quicker. What people do, they might look at a scheme like that if they've got the income to support the 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 um the repayments on the loan, but they've got no buffer, you know. Um, or they might have a buffer in a separate bank account in a different bank, you know. But anyway, this so so that's got its limitations, right? They might get money from family. Um, and the bank of mum and dad is now what the fifth largest lender in this country. I, I don't have the data off the top of my head. You probably do, Martin, for how many people are getting um, help from their families. And something like I think the average um, amount of money is something like one hundred twelve thousand dollars. That's the average that these people are getting. All the mortgage brokers I'm I'm speaking to are saying that this is on the increase. And so what this does is. It's all well and good if your parents are in the property market now or grandparents, sometimes it's grandparents. It's all well and good if your family has already got equity and they're already in the market and they can continue to actually keep that wealth in the property market, in the family, and they can pass that down to their adult children. But if your parents don't have a home, if you don't have grandparents or parents or somebody that's prepared to go guarantor for you or to lend you the money or to give you an early inheritance or anything like that, you're on your own. And so these shared equity schemes are being in, introduced in a way to help that segment of the market. And so the shared equity scheme is roughly where the government says, right, well, I'll go into co-ownership with you on that property. So you don't need as big a deposit because, you know, I'm going to, the government takes X percent. It might be, uh, honestly, I should have checked all the numbers on this, but, you know, it might be 40% equity. Um, so that means you've got to come up with your deposit on 60% of the property, not the 100% of it, right? And it might give you the opportunity to actually get into a larger home um, than you would otherwise be able to buy. Like you might only be able to buy a one-bedroom unit, but if you are able to access this, perhaps you could get into a larger home. That will last you longer that you won't need to upgrade. You won't need to necessarily climb the ladder, right? And you may not be able to climb the ladder either because at the end of the day, somehow you've got to either pay the government back um, and there's certain mechanisms that are built into to the um, to the agreement that, you know, if your income rises over a certain level, you've got to start making bigger repayments. There's certain restrictions around, you know, adding value to the property and renovating, all that sort of thing. So you've got to really read the fine print and fully understand what it is that you're, you're um, getting into. But it is an opportunity, it does give an opportunity for some people would fit the category where this might be appropriate for them to consider. And this Sonny is his name, I think, um, you know, he might fit in that category. He's got a family, right? He's got all his networks in a certain area. Um, if he'd saved a certain amount of money, and I guess, and banks do take into account, well, some banks, I should say, do apparently, I hear this because I'm not a broker, so I can't give this advice, take into account the rent you've been paying and you've got to sort of demonstrate all that sort of stuff. So it's not necessarily dead money in that regard. You've actually been demonstrating your ability to, to, make, to make those payments. But so if there's a way that you can afford to get into the market and take ex advantage of a shared equity scheme, that is something to look at. In so, who, for someone who's in a situation like that. The, the limitation being, of course, you know, they've still got to focus on a good asset. You know, they've got to focus on something they're not going to outgrow as quickly because it's, that's the, that's something that will save them money down the track as well, that transaction cost in terms of upgrowing, uh, upgrading. But also the problem with that is that because the government owns a chunk of it, when you do sell to upgrade, you're going to have to pay back that chunk. And so you don't have... Um, 
you know, you don't have all the access to all the equity that you would have if you were able to buy that property on your own. So there are some limitations with that. But for somebody who's able to get into a family home that they they could stay in for a long time, um, it might be an option that, you know, that might be the ideal candidate for. Yes, and the shared equity uh, scheme is definitely worth exploring. But I would say read the small print because 100%. there are some gotchas and uh, – your ability to move might be somewhat limited. Um, there might yes. be some issues at po- what what point the mortgage rate goes up to a higher level um, because mm. in some cases the shared equity schemes aren't necessarily the cheapest mortgages that, that, that are out there. And uh, there are a few other traps. The unwary. In the UK, they've been running this scheme for about uh, 10 years now, and quite a few of the people who had an initial uh, leg up um, discovered they couldn't sell the property because at the point which they sell the property, half the equity then goes back to the government. So you actually have not created yeah. as big a pool of equity as you thought you might have because, of course, prices didn't rise as much as perhaps people expected. And the other is that the, in the UK, lenders have got a bit twitchy about um, some of these schemes too. So so it is definitely worth exploring, but it's not a silver bullet. The other point, of course, is if you actually have shared equity schemes, it tends to help lift prices even further. So whilst you're actually helping to give somebody a step up onto the property ladder, more generally what you're doing is giving a further lift to home prices, which is actually making it even more difficult for those who aren't actually able to get in on the ladder. And it goes back to one of your charts that you showed there, which is a, a level of government intervention yeah. uh, in the property market. Yeah. On that chart, it was quite interesting. Had the big spike around the GFC, which is to be expected. But the big, the next big spike wasn't COVID. It's actually now. Yep. Here's the, here's the chart again. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's it's so, remarkable. And that's. But and that's if- CGT. C- and that's that's okay. So that's a capital gains tax discount. I'm presuming that's right. On that fifty percent discount properties. on sales investment properties. Yes, yeah. So, which is an uptick because of, there's been a massive increase or quite a significant increase in the sale of investment properties. Correct. Yes, and, and the quite ne- funny. And, the, and the negative gearing, of course, is higher now because the interest rates are higher. So therefore, investors are able to offset a greater proportion mm. in, in in dollar terms of the interest they're paying. And then you've got the Commonwealth rent assistance, which of course is is up because of course rents have gone up. And then you've got various other measures too. So actually, when you when you think about it, this is a huge impost on taxpayers, right? So you know, the, mm. so so one of the things I keep I keep coming back to is you know don't think that this market is a is a free market or you know it, it's it's literally standard buy sell. There's another party here. Right? In fact, there's a couple of parties. There's, oh, 100%. Right? Uh, as well as the, the big developers and what, what they want to do, as well as the banks and what they want to do, uh, as well as the state and feds and you know the political cycle and the elections and those. There are so many people with a thumb on the, on the scales, as it were, that really tilts this from being a, a, a fair market into a massively massively distorted market and it's certainly back not to, a free market it's not no it's not <laughs> a free market and in fact you know th- this idea of property up to the right um is sort of true but in fact if you go back 150 years the scale of the upward growth was much lower so there have mm. been reasons why it is that this has actually really been dramatic in recent times and, and you know 
I, <laughs> you and I disagree slightly on this, but in, in absolute terms, prices are still 40% over where they should be, right? If you go back to the ratios that we had then. But I know it's a different world now. But my, my point is we, we are in this um, extended bubble or worse. And so some of these shared equity schemes potentially just drive things in the same direction again. So it doesn't necessarily solve the underlying issue. It just allows a few more people to, to get on the, on the ladder. So, Well, it's just because we're fueling the fire 100%. And, and so, of course, the problem is that um, – you know, if we if we go through from oh, I should have done my little history lesson on this, but if you go through the the housing in Australia since World War Two, when I think it was Menzies decided that you know everybody should own a home, and something seventy percent of adults ended up owning their own home. It, have you got that data, um, Martin? Do you know that? Is that if I got that right? Uh, sorry, I just asked so, me the question post, again. Post World War Two, Robert yes. Menzies, who was the Prime Minister at the time, yes. he decided that he had this policy of getting all Australians into a home, and so this was the Correct. first real intervention in the property market, Correct. right? Yes. And in fact, if you do look at a, a longitudinal, you know, those graphs from from 1900 to now in terms of property prices, the the years around World War Two, they did some pretty they were pretty low. They dropped, right? Correct. Well, so, well, but one of the things there was they they brought people into the country. And encourage them then to build their own properties as part yeah, okay. of the strategy of how they actually expanded. And, and it was actually building property and the infrastructure around property. So it was so, actually joined up thinking from the yeah. post war period up till the late 60s. Interesting. And so then I think it got to a point where 70% of adults own their own home. Yep. Is that the right figure? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Now we're down to what are we down to now? So um, if you look at it now, one third of households own outright, another mm. third are paying a mortgage and a third are renting. And in fact, the right. people who own outright, that proportion is dropping. And the other yeah. interesting factoid is that um, the average first time buyer 20 years ago was in their mid 20s. Now they're in their mid 30s. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So on every measure, it's gone in the wrong direction. Yeah, it's harder, right? And yeah. so you've got this incentive to get into the marketplace. You know, the the government decided everyone should buy a home, so that that was all all um, encouraged. Then the the lenders uh, didn't want to, you know, they didn't want to take risk, right? So then lenders' mortgage insurance was invented to encourage uh, banks to lend a higher proportion of the purchase price. Have I got that right? So yeah, so there, there were three things that happened. Um, yeah through the sort of 90s onwards, firstly, the deregulation of the financial system, which allowed more people to, to come in and, and, and offer loans. And the government control on how much the banks could lend was, was actually dialed well, well back. Yep. So that meant that banks were able to lend quite a lot more. The other is then we had a, a rise in securitized lending. So that allowed um, non-banks to actually throw mm -hmm the deal on the table as well. So there was more availability of credit. And so one of the one of the booms that's driven this is actually credit availability. Mortgage brokers, mm. of course, started popping up. And so they were actually able to, um, um, you know, Sell connect with lines. some of those non-bank lenders and, uh, and, and, and the multiples started to expand. So the regulators dialed back their controls on, you know, it used to be maybe, you know, three times the first income and half a second income. Now it's, you know, six times, mm. seven times joint incomes. I mean, yeah. those things. Are, well, so, but, so, that, 
But also the joint incomes is important because it used to be that, you know, your typical nuclear family had one income earner. And then you've got a situation as we move through, so into the 80s, into the 90s, where more women are participating in the workforce and you've got more families where there's two incomes. And so two incomes can contribute to a bigger mortgage, right? And so in terms of society and in terms of the structure of our property market and the financing of that, there's been all these societal changes but also financial changes yep. that have allowed more money to be put into the property market. And, of course, we also have this sort of great Australian dream of owning property. And so, you know, to mean it's all in our psyche. And now we're at the point, though, where it's becoming so it, unaffordability has got to a point where the government has to step in with things such as shared equity, as you're talking about, which then contributes to raising prices even more. So we've had all these, in, you know, these first home grants, and there's been a fair amount of work that's been done, you know, research being done around what impact that has to prices. My anecdotal understanding or observation has really been in many times uh, a new grant is introduced and the price goes up more than the grant. And so, and I was selling real estate at the time when the very first um, first home buyers grant of three thousand dollars, I think it was back in two thousand and whenever it was, came in, and people waited. They delayed their purchase until it came in, and we just saw prices go up by double that easy, you know. Um, so, so all of these things have have not only made prices increase, but they've allowed people to participate in the market, which then feeds back into prices increasing. And I think that this new new raft of of um, uh, initiatives to help first home buyers is is really just that next stage in that evolution. I don't know what's after that, but for the moment we've got these these sort of impetus and there's this meddling that's going to encourage prices to continue to grow and yeah. remain at forty percent overvalue. Mm, yeah, spot <laughs> on. And, <laughs> and of course, the uh, proportion of investment properties have risen dramatically if you go back over 20, 30 years. I mean. Back then, back in the 40s and 50s, public housing was a very important additional strategy, right? Mm. So there was a lot of investment in state and federal governments putting a lot of money into and helping people with housing. Now, that also went away. So basically what we've done is we've outsourced pretty much completely now housing to the private markets. Yes. So... In other words, encouraging investors to invest because it provides more supply of investment properties, which means you've got more properties to rent. Although, unfortunately, at the moment, we've got more people selling investment properties rather than actually putting new properties on the market, one of the reasons why the rental market is so tight at the moment. So so it's it's been a remarkable transformation in the way that, that property is, is thought about. Um, and it's interesting when when you sort of stand back and think about the journey that we've been through, you know, you'd argue, I think, that some of those changes are probably irreversible. So the idea of mm. um, going back to a single income. Um, and it's interesting that CBA, you know, when they quote housing affordability, they assume two full incomes as a baseline affordability measure mm. when they when they produce all their charts. Now, you wouldn't have done that a couple of decades ago, right? So that, that's an, a fundamental change, right? Which, which means then you've got more capacity, quote, unquote, to, to borrow. Um, so so, so go on. the problem with all of this is, though, of course, is that, you know, we can sort of rant and rail against it. We can say how unfair it is, which it is unfair, right? It is unfair about this gap 
between those that have and those that don't have and those that never will have. It is unfair that the governments, successive governments over the last seven decades, have been have uh, presided over dramatically reduced investment in public housing. It yeah. is unfair. All of these things are unfair. But to we can go, I'm not going to participate in the property market because I hate it and I think it's unfair and it's not right. You know, you can rail, you can rail against it, you can rant against it all you damn well like, but the fact is it is what it is and owners, homeowners in this country, notwithstanding those people who make bad decisions and lose money, generally are better off financially and particularly getting to retirement, um, you are better off. Now, obviously with... Um, you know, with the rental situation as it is now, that home insecurity, that sort of that, you know, families, you know, not being able to find places to live. This is the sort of thing you do not want. You don't want to be homeless, particularly families with two parents with incomes. I mean, this isn't just people on social security. This is a terrible, terrible situation. And that insecurity is something that you don't want. So there's there's lots of reasons why home ownership is something to still aspire to, even though this is a shit sandwich. Well, it is it is very difficult. And and that's why I, I wanted to use Sonny as an example, right? Because that really brings it home to, to an mm. an individual and his family trying to make the right decision in the context of a lot of bad decisions. Because yeah. there, there there are no simple answers. There are no easy solutions and, and you know i see this in my surveys all the time those people who've got onto the ladder and are finding that a greater proportion of their income than ever before is now going to pay the mortgage is putting huge financial pressure on those people now i'm not saying they shouldn't mm. have got in although i think in some cases they probably didn't do their homework in terms of rates could go up remember that long-term average rates or mortgage rates are closer to seven percent rather than zero percent right mm. um but the fact is that we've got a lot of people now wrestling with, with, with some of these difficulties. The other point I, I think it's worth just reflecting on is the concept of, of the housing ladder. It's not just one rung, right? There's also this question of aspiring to move up and move up because, of course, life events, you know, families, <laughs> things change. So, so suddenly you need a, a bigger property, a bigger property. Then also at the other end, potentially a smaller property. And one of the things that really intrigues me at the moment is the inability for the property ladder to help people up and down as well. So it's not mm. just those trying to get on the ladder. It's actually those up the ladder uh, are also finding the rungs are rather a large way apart or it's quite yeah. difficult to actually jump from one to the other because the transaction costs are so high and the supply of property is so low. So, so in Home Bar Academy, we call this a stepping stone strategy, right? So, that, you know, it's the same as the rungs of the ladder, it's a stepping stone to where you want to get. And we actually have a, we have a little tutorial we sell, we sell on the stepping stone tragedy. Uh, tragedy. Oh, that's a Freudian slip, isn't it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's a you said um, it. <laughs> the step, I did say it, the stepping stone tragedy, the stepping stone strategy. You know, it's a little tutorial we sell for 39 bucks, right? And, and because... It, the reality is most people don't buy their forever home first up. It's really unusual to buy your for, forever home first up. So so forgetting what the conditions are in the marketplace right now, this has been the case for some time, right, that you would buy small and then hopefully 
gain equity and be able to, to leapfrog your way up the ladder or across the lake or whatever it is you're, you're using the stepping stones to cross, right? So the thing is with the stepping stone strategy is that if you get your first step wrong or you get in the first rung wrong, you're never going to get to the next step, right? And so there is risk with this. And so, you know, because you, you're if you're curtailed, if you stopped from being able to progress, you're stuck with whatever you got. Now, it might be that some people move out, rent a bigger place and rent that property out. If they've got a good asset, they might choose to do that. Um, so at least if you've got a good asset, even if it doesn't serve your purposes for a period of time, you've got options. But if you've got a poor asset, then you're really, really stumped. So the thing with the stepping stone strategy, though, it it, the, it is very important that you focus on capital growth. Because if you don't build equity, so that's building the bit that you own versus the bit you owe. Um, if you don't build equity and you build it as fast as possible, you're going to fall behind, right? So we sort of look at three primary groups of buyers that would suit the stepping stone strategy, right? Some other buyers are rent vesters, right? They're never going to live in the home or they might not live in the home for some time. You know, they might retire into it and they'll rent it out in the meantime. They always rent where they live and they'll buy an investment uh, somewhere else. And this is not about rent vesting. This is about owner occupiers looking to leverage themselves up that ladder, right? So there's three primary groups of home buyers that this would suit, this stepping stone strategy. One is those with a vision to add value to a property through renovation. And so just the vision, you do need the skills as well. And you also need the budget because you've got to be able to fund that renovation. You've got to be able to choose the right sort of property that you can add value to that's within your capacity of, um, you know, being able to, to do it, right? Some people buy it off way more than they could chew. They think renovating is easy and cheap and it's not like it is on the block, right? Um, second, uh, the second group that suits the, the stepping stone strategy are income earners who are on an upward trajectory on their career path. So doctors are a classic example of this. You know, they don't earn a lot of money for a while, then they specialize and all of a sudden, their, their earnings really ramp up or people that are on a, you know, they might be on a, a pathway, they might be a lawyer or accountant or, you know, going for partnership or whatever it is. Although that can be an absolute trap. You can get yourself totally trapped because you can mortgage, but that's another story. If you hate your career, um, it could be small business people that really um, are investing a lot of time and money in their business. And, you know, they've got confidence that it's going to grow and they might be able to sell it or it's going to be a good income earner for them over time. So somebody who is really seeing that their personal income is going to quite dramatically increase over the next, say, five years, they could be looking at the stepping stone strategy because they're going to easily be able to do their upgrade um, because of their income, the added income. So they still need to worry about capital growth, but they don't have to value add. You know, they can buy something they can just uh, sit in it or live in it. Um, and then there's a third group, which is stable income earners with no interest in renovating. And so there's the types of property that each of those three groups buys is different, right? Because, um, you know, if you're looking to up, if you're looking to do the renovating, right, you need to be an, on a high growth area and you're going to be relying also on market lift, right? Um, you, you know, you're going to have to look at manufacturing equity via renovation, right? So that could be a cosmetic 
um, through to a complete rebuild, which obviously depends on your capacities. But there's risk in that. There's risk in all of these things, right? Um, and then there's the um, the natural upgrade. So buying in an area and then staying in that area and just just working your way up in that area. So there's 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 three sort of different ways that you can approach the stepping stone strategy. But fundamentally, they will fail or succeed on what you buy as your first property. So understanding what makes a good asset in whatever area you're buying, whatever budget you're buying, that is absolutely key to getting the stepping stone strategy right because if you fail on that one, you'd be stuck on that first stone. And that's a very solitary message, isn't it? Because basically what it says is that the stakes are extremely high, particularly for that first step on the ladder. Yep. It's uh, the it, most important purchase yeah. you can make, getting yeah. that one right. And yet there are so many pressures on households, you know, particularly as they are trying to wrestle with, with, with this. So many external pressures too in terms of, you know, the agents and everything else. So, so how do you navigate, you know, what, 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 how do you go through this sort of thinking process for that first step? You know, what, what, are, the, what are the critical things to think about? Well, the other little workshop that we sell, in fact, we sell them as a bundle too, um, is the where to buy workshop. And the where to buy, where should I buy, is the number one question that first home buyers and also investors, they both ask the same question, where should I buy? The problem is that, particularly for first home buyers, the answer, in fact, it doesn't matter where you are in terms of whether you're first, second, third, fourth, fifth home buyer, the process to work out where to buy is the same right and that is that it is a unique blend of three elements and one one of these three elements will flex more than the other two and how they flex and what's more important is very unique to you as an individual so there's a process that we actually teach you to go through to look at your requirements and the and the market and what the market offers um through these three prisms right so the three aspects the three p's we call them is the price the property itself and the position. So price is your budget. Now, here's a good example for first home buyers, whether they're looking at taking advantage of shared equity schemes or, you know, deposit guarantees or anything like that, right? Is that your price um, or the budget you have, if you have, um, you accept no help, right, is going to be X. But if you then go to you know, and taking the, the shared equity scene for argument's sake, your budget is going to change significantly. So there's a, le a level of flex with price, right? So you've got to sort of understand if I don't accept help and I go to have 100% of the equity in the property myself, for example, what does that mean my budget is, right, versus how much more will I have to play with, right? So that's one aspect. The second aspect is the property itself. So if my budget is fixed, and I have these certain property requirements, like I have to have three bedrooms, I have to have a garden, I have to have whatever it is I have to have. It has to be renovated because I have no skills to renovate. It has to be, um, you know, a house. I want it on a block of land. Uh, all those sort of property characteristics. And then there's the position, so the location. And so the thing is if your budget won't give you the property with all the characteristics that you need in the location you want, well, something's got to give. Most people can't get what they want where they want it and for the property for the price. So something's got to give. So can you get more money, right? So does the shared equity scheme, for example, 
give you the ability to get exactly the home you want in the location you want. And so maybe that's an option for you, right? And if it's not, you go, right, what's the next thing? Could I go with one smaller bedroom? Could I forego being in a house and look at a townhouse instead? Could I look at something to renovate that I could live in now, but maybe I'll renovate in five years? You know, what are the things that I can flex on in the property itself in order to keep my budget fixed and stay in a location that I want to be in? And if that's unworkable, you're going to have to look at location. You're going to have to say, or the position with the other P is positional location. You're going to have to say, where else then for my budget, can I get the property characteristics that I need? Where can I get it? And you know what? If the answer is nowhere, then you go got to go back to the drawing board and go, right, well, I need, I really need to work on the price or the property characteristics. So it sort of, it takes you away from fantasy land. You know, like to say it's that you're not painting a picture of your ideal home. You're actually taking a snapshot of the market. And and the way that you test this is you look at sold properties, sold property data, individual listings of uh, recently sold properties. So you then go and say, right, if I'm looking in X suburb, and I've got X amount of dollars, what has sold in the last, say, three to six months within that budget that fit my requirements? And there's your litmus test. That, that, that is your reality check. That's going to tell you whether what you want is realistic or not. Normally it's not. So <laughs> you're going to have to go, right, well, how much more money do I need to get the perfect property? And it's the sole data or the, and, and it's not the data, it's the examples, looking at the photos, the floor plans. And in fact, if you get out there and look at open houses, um, the best way is to go through these properties yourself and actually research an area on your own feet, to your feet, getting these properties. Because what you see online is very different, right? But you have to go through this process to really get a firm grip on what's out there and what your possibilities are. Now I started explaining that and I can't remember even what the question was. <laughs> no, no, no. You, you actually, um, you, you cut it real. But uh, two observations. The first observation is you will have to make some compromise somewhere. Always. Yes. Even if you've got millions and millions of dollars, there will still be some compromises, some things that you will have to trade off. So, so get used to that concept. With budgets. I've had clients who budgets of $12 million that have to compromise. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah. But the second point is not all the trade-offs are equal, mm. right? So there are some things that are actually much, much more important to hold on to, like, for example, the ability to be able to resell the property later relative to I've got to have four bedrooms, you know. Maybe I could yeah. get away with one less. So it's a complex mixture of trading off those various things. And then there's another aspect that I think we've got to talk about, and that is this rational thought-leading approach versus the, oh, that's a lovely property, I've got to buy it, right? Because there is an emotional and irrational side to property purchase as well. And unfortunately, I sometimes see the irrational overtaking the rational. Now, that's a complicated thing to get to unpick, but it's also very important, isn't it? It's part of the process. I think emotions in property purchases are underrated. I think that we should acknowledge and harness our emotional response to properties because the thing is what pushes up prices are 
emotional responses to properties. So if you're having an emotional response to a property and you think, okay, this is something that's actually quite universal. Other people will also have an emotional response to this property and you can pin down what it is about the property that you are responding to, then that isn't necessarily a bad thing. But where emotional emotion gets in the way of property, good property decisions is where you're reacting to fears that come through FOMO or through just market uh, coverage, market, you know, the the um, deadlines, and you're thinking, I've got to get in, I've got to get in, I've got to get in, and you're not actually responding to the property, you're responding to your fear that you're going to miss out, right? Really different in terms of how emotion needs to be harnessed in buying property. So I see FOMO playing out, that's fear of missing out, playing out all the time. I see it that people just basically you know, abandoning their, their judgment. Um, and then it's, that's afterwards, they get, what have I done? Because actually the property becomes secondary to the fear of missing out. Now, as I said, if you can harness that emotional response to a property and you can see that it's actually a good thing for your future buyer, always thinking about your future buyer, and they're likely to have that emotional response, or you can actually create an emotional response um, there's a classic FOMO or oh no, I love that. I might, I might steal that. Um, if you can do that, then that's, that's a way to make emotion your friend in property. But the big, big problem is that people are reacting to what they're perceiving, uh, you know, what's going on. They're, they're trying to ride the market. They're trying to control things that are actually outside their control. And that's when they make really bad decisions. And interestingly, quite a few of my one-on-one conversations, it's often with, with with a couple, you know, and you'll have one of the party, the rational, financial, you know, what's the return? The other is the emotional, I got, you know, I love the property, et cetera, et cetera. And somehow you've got to find a way of bridging the, the gap because I think both dimensions are valid and appropriate. But if you're not careful, you end up being taken in completely different directions. So that to me is like it's like a Venn diagram, you know, yeah. like quite often a couple start looking at property or start talking about looking at property. You know, they've got their their circles overlap, overlap a hell of a lot more um, until they actually get out there looking at them. And then you start seeing this, um, this divergence. And in many couples, particularly if one, particularly with these children involved, and if one is more of the, uh, taking the financial heavy lifting load and the other one is taking more of the, the the kid load and the house load, which happens in many families, let's face it, um, they're going to have different priorities and different um, needs, right? But that, you know, being rational, the person trying to make rational decisions, quite often they're driven by fear. So it's still an emotion. It's just that they sound logical, but they're actually not and so it's identifying what is that that's actually driving them to be hyperlogical about this and and because this is the problem, they go to their corners and their, their little Venn diagram becomes a tiny sliver in the middle where they're actually agreeing on anything. And so we do this sort of, we call it property therapy in my buyer's agency business where we actually sort of coach them into, okay, let's let's deal with this fear and let's also talk about what the emotional response is and it, it does that make it a good investment because um, 
I always encourage owner occupiers to think of their home as an investment, and I encourage investors to think like owner occupiers because that that emotion is what drives values, right? So, so these are really important discussions to have, and I think it's important that the person is rational. You know, they don't get off the hook. It's like you know what you're feeling something, mate. You're feeling things. You've got emotions going on, and you're just pretending that you're logical, and that's that's a lot more valuable and valid in your decision making, and. The emotions on this side of things, let's sort of, let's take the heat out of that and because there's there's fear of missing out in there as well, right? So let's take the heat out of that and actually hear that person. And when they're both heard, we can actually get a better outcome. Yeah, very good point. And uh, certainly uh, <laughs> in my um, experience with my one-on-ones, it's more counselling than anything else, right? It's trying yeah. to allow therapy. people... To see the other side of the, um, the the coin, it's not either or; it's it's both and. And in fact, uh, you mm. know, the, the best outcomes are when you can actually, as you say, expand the Venn diagram to be able to actually, you know, encapsulate a, a, a greater area. Um, I guess the other point it's worth just thinking about: if you're buying for long-term owner occupation, you hope the property values will, will go up, but property values don't go up linearly. Sometimes they will come down and, and up and down. Now, if you're buying for somewhere to live, you know, accommodation, security, et cetera, et cetera, maybe the concept of it's always got to go up is actually not necessarily the right way to think about it. You hope that it will, but it isn't probably the most important lever. Whereas if you've got an investment property, my hypothesis is you're going to make very little on the rental return. So you've got to assume or hope that you're going to see capital appreciation because that's effectively how investment properties yield. Now, is, is that a false dichotomy in your mind? Not really. Um, you know, I think we often have, I often hear people say, oh, look, I don't care about capital growth because I'm going to live in it for 20 years. And mm-hmm. I'm like, well... If you live in it for 20 years and capital growth is even more important because that means that you're you are going to be 20 years behind other people that do care about capital growth and that's a long time you know that's a long time to go backwards so so you need to care about it right instead of just thinking oh, i just need a home so i th- i still think that um buying for the long term you can still think about your future buyer and you can still you know consider that look or there's always going to be a family or there's always going to be something. I mean, look, zoning's change anyway and you might end up making heaps because all of a sudden you can build a block of apartments on the house site. So, you know, who knows? Anything can change in 20 years. But there is merit in basically having a secure home in an area that you want to stay in and you want to be in. But I still think even within that, you've got to try to choose an asset that's a good asset. So don't be trying to buy on a main road next to a service station just because you're desperate to be in that suburb. You know, that's going to cost you. Whereas you buy on a nice street, then it's going to do, do, you know, as good or better than the average property in the area. And I think these are important things to, to think about. Um, with investors, not enough investors do think about capital growth. You know, they, I, I spoke to a guy the other day who was telling me that he sold one property that had actually quite a good yield and and surprised me with the growth that he'd had in a short period of time. I think there was a huge amount of luck. Um, and, you know, because the, the mortgage had gone up and so he sold that and he wanted to buy something that had um, a much greater yield. And I've gone, well... Why bother buying property? Because the thing is with yield, you've, you, A, there's risk with that anyway, but also you have to pay tax on it. Like 
you know, capital growth, you're not paying tax on it until you sell it. You're actually investing um, your future tax liability and getting a return on it, like, you know, in terms of equity, as long as you buy a good asset, that is. Whereas buying for rental yield um, is actually fraught with danger and you often usually is at the expense of capital growth. So it doesn't compound and you're paying tax on it as you as you receive it. So you're you're as a wealth creation strategy, it just doesn't stack up. You look at the you look at the dollars, you look at the graph next to each other, it doesn't stack up. You buy capital growth, you know, in 10 years' time you're gonna be better off than if you buy for yield. Um but investors don't think that way because they they sort of fixate on the cash flow as being a good investment. And Agents, I hear say this all the time. Oh, it's a good investment. What what makes you say that? Oh, it's got good rent. <sighs> that is not make a good investment, no. you know. <laughs> and if you want income-producing asset, then it might be that property isn't for you or perhaps you look at commercial property or, or whatever, but residential property is not known for being great income-producing asset. So, you know, you've got to look at it for capital growth, but and yet there is still a lot of false belief around Australian property investors around yield being the biggest, the most important metric. And it's the one that's propagated so often when I, when I hear agents speaking, you know, about about mm-hmm. the the way to, to to measure the performance of the of the asset. But uh, yep. I agree with you; it, it is ultimately about moving to the right, right? And like I say, mm. over the long term, property prices move to the right. Um, that's but let me make that point over the long term which is the other point aggregated I wa- yeah aggregated market moves to the right correct yes some people don't exactly and it doesn't happen overnight so the other thing mm. i find amazing to me is the short termism that some people think about you know i'm going to buy this and yep. then you know, next year I'll I'll, I'll flip it. Except, well, just remember the, the the costs involved in actually oh. getting the property in the first place, the expense you're going to actually come when you actually come to flip it. I mean, so often a lot of these costs don't get factored in people's thinking. Have you ever had Peter Kalizos on your show? No. The property professor. Mm. He's he's. I like Peter. Mm. Um, He's retired, but he still does it. You know, he still pops up every now and then on on the property, um, around about. He um, so Peter wrote a book. Oh, I think it's about twenty years ago. Is it fifteen years ago? I can't remember now. But on you know growth markets in Australia, and he did all this research. And um, he's one of the very few people that is prepared to review his own predictions and assess where he got it wrong, and what can we learn from that. So he's, he's known as a property professor for a very good reason and, and he has been a uh, lecturer at Adelaide Uni um, as well. But he he also, now I was going somewhere with that and I totally forgot what it was. Um, it'll come to me. What were you just talking about, Martin? Timeframes. Uh, <laughs> Timeframes. Time oh, yeah. yeah. So so he, he did an exercise where he sort of worked out, he looked at, you know, historical movements in capital cities across Australia and he did an exercise and worked out that if you actually were able to exactly pinpoint the right time to buy, the right time to sell and, and you know, moved your, moved your money around, you know, property in Australia over this sort of period of time, would you be better off? And I think it was such a tiny margin um, that you'd be better off that it was certainly not worth the risk of getting it wrong at any point. Um, along that way. And that was with the benefit of hindsight of actually knowing exactly when these markets moved. So it's an exercise you wouldn't bother with. 
really, because choosing it's a bit like those those studies that have been done on the share market that compare the the returns of people that are active traders versus those who buy good assets and set and forget. You know, and the long-term returns have been, you know, a percentage higher on average. I think I think that's the average was average percent, a one percent greater gain per year, and that compounds quite significantly over time. And you got less stress as well, and less, you know, less mucking around. You got time to do other things if you just do that. Um, and so, you know, and it's the set and forget. If you if you know how to buy a good asset in the first place and you've got confidence that you made a good decision and then you can ride out market fluctuations and all the rest of it, you'll be better off than trying to to trade it. Um, anyway, so that Peter did that exercise. I thought it was a really, a really good illustration of the folly of trying to sort of dive in the markets, dive out, ride the market, you know, sell high, buy low, all that sort of palaver. It's it's a myth that anyone can actually do it. Mm, well, there are a lot of people, of course, who are spruiking just that uh, strategy, you know, buy my first, buy my second, buy my fifth, buy my 20th, you know. Um, I have yeah. to say for every one of those who actually have um, won, uh, there are many, many who haven't won and you never hear about those, do you? No, you don't. And you know what? There's there's cycles of spruikers with their, their lovely get-rich-quick clever schemes and they come and go and and I've just seen uh, in, in recent couple of years I've, I've seen it's almost like seeing the mining town boom spruikers coming out all over again I mean I know they're not pitching mining towns anymore but it's the same message and it's just like yeah 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 if you've been around long enough you heard it all before let's watch this lot fail absolutely well as we come to the end of the show um uh, Veronica I guess um the thing that I want to underscore which is what you said right at the start right that purchase decision, especially to get on the property market for the first time on the property ladder, is a really complex, critical and important mm. decision. And very often people are not well equipped to make that decision right. And uh, I want to just uh, call out the tools that you've got that really can help people because actually I think people could do with a bit of help to make the right decision because it makes such a huge difference. And I, I want to underscore what you said. If you're on the right versus the wrong trajectory and you actually measure what happens in the subsequent five years, the gap between a bad and a good decision is huge. It's massive. It's absolutely massive. Um, look, Home Buyer Academy is what Megan Wells and I have, have um, created, right, and that is a, an online course for, it's for first home buyers, but we've actually had a lot of people in there that done it that aren't first home buyers. They're, they're, you know, second and maybe even subsequent home buyers. And so your first home buyer guide is the course. And we take you through the 10 steps to buying a property and getting it right. I'll, I'll, I'll list you through what they are, right? I'm going to refer to my little list on the wall because, you know, <laughs> I should be able to remember this off by heart. But it's, it's, it's we call the acronym is PACE. So it's preparation action, commitment, then execution, right? And in that pace, there's 10 steps within that pace. And preparation starts with the first one is getting your support crew right. And this can be done, this includes your mortgage broker. So this can be done before you've saved what you think you need to save because often people can buy sooner than they think they can buy. So getting getting your support crew, you know, your legals, your, your um, uh, if any advisors that you're going to use, if you need an accountant, mortgage broker, all that sort of stuff. So it's it's working around who do you need on your team, who do you not need on your team, right, and 
how to get the best people on your team. So that's step one. Step two is money. Okay. So that's basically understanding and we're not, we're not in the budgeting space or we're not in the finance space or anything like that. But what we do recognize is that this is a very important part of getting your head around in the right space to be ready to buy a property. And so once you've got your support crew there, you can get the advice from the right people and get that money piece in place. And that a lot of that is around how much do you need really to buy a property? Um, and then includes the costs and understanding all of that sort of stuff and and grants and what the what the trade-offs are um, grants and the true cost of grants as well. The third thing is the plan. So once you got that right, um, you need a plan, and that is uh, part of that where to buy uh, tutorial that I spoke about earlier. That's that's in at that phase, and that's really understanding what the possibilities are for your search and really where you need to be focusing your attention um, and where to direct your property search. And that's the preparation phase. So then we get into action. So the first step, it's number four on our list is search and inspect. So you get out and you hit the pavement and start looking at properties and got to start understanding agents and start listening to what they're saying. What does it mean? All that sort of stuff, right? And then the fifth stage, which is probably the most important step, and that is to revise and correct. Slow down before you speed up. And I can't tell you how many people, we do a weekly campfire where we ha- we give live guidance to our students. And so they can, once they're um, bought the course, they can, they can choose to join us for weekly campfires, bring us their properties. We comment on them. We talk about negotiation strategy, help them uh, in terms of working out how to go forward and, and actually secure those properties. Um, and, you know, in that revise and correct phase, it's so often and so important that people, when they get to that point where they're ready, they've got their finance in place, they start looking at property, then they realize, oh, hang on a minute, something's not quite right. And so we really guide them and help them work out what needs to shift and get on the right path. So we use a metaphor of climbing a mountain. And if you take the wrong path, you might end up falling off a glacier. So, you know, you've got to get your map out and go, hang on a minute, am I on the right path here? So that's the fifth step. Then we move into the commitment phase. So it's a sea of pace. And um, and that's when we're talking about, what's our next one? Uh, the methods of sale. So understanding the methods of sale uh, and what that means. You know, how to go about actually understanding how to purchase a property, like what are the mechanics of it, auction, private treaty, you know, expressions of interest, all that sort of stuff. Uh, So really teaching what does that mean? What does it mean when agents say different things around how to make offers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, The next thing, step seven is evaluate. Uh, I did say revise and correct was the most important. Evaluate really has to be up there. That's your due diligence. We teach you what to look at in the information that an agent will give you and the stuff that the agent doesn't give you and what you need to find out before you make an offer on a property. Really important stuff, right? Because there's so much, there's so many mistakes that can be made by not realizing what access, what information you can access before you buy a property. So that's the evaluation. And then once you've done all of that, supposedly you found a property you like, you've actually evaluated. That includes working out what it's worth. We teach you how to work out what it's worth as well. Then you move into the execution phase, right? So this is the important, this is the exciting stuff. Then um, the contract of sale, so understanding what that means, what goes into it, what legal advice you need before you make an offer, all of that sort of stuff. Then the negotiation or auction, that's the ninth step. And then the tenth step is settlement. So they are 10 steps that you need to get in the right order. This has been tried and tested by many, many, many students. And it's also a process that Megan and I use in our buyer's agency businesses. And if you get those steps wrong, 
you run huge risk of making very, very avoidable mistakes. So this is, um, anyway, that's our program. <laughs> so uh, that's your first home buyer guide. And the website is homebuyeracademy.com.au if you want to go and check it out. And the observation there is so much of the stuff you've spoken about is before you actually put an offer in. Oh, my God. <laughs> People make offers way too fast, way too fast um, without knowing what it's worth. And they, the big, one of the hugest mistakes that not just first home buyers but all buyers make is that they decide what a property is worth based on what the agent told them. So if the asking price, they go, oh, I'll just knock 5% off that. Where did this 5% come from? Or if it's an auction price guide, I'll just add 10% to that. No, I get where the 10% came from because that's on the agency agreement, but does that mean that it's worth it? No, you've got to go and do your own research. We've actually got a free mini course. People can, if you get on that website, you can get out, you can download our free course to teach you how to price a property. And people make offers at the open house before they've done a scary of, of um, due diligence. Unbelievable. Happens all the time. Agents love it. That's how they um, get uh, some of their um, numbers up without necessarily yeah, giving. Yeah, exactly. Well, Veronica, as always, um, great conversation. Thank you very much for um, taking some time out to, to, to share your thoughts with us. Um, so many different websites that, that you've got your finger in the pie. I've put um, your main web website in the comments. But, um, is that veronicamorgan.com.au? It is. Excellent. Yep. Every, that's the one source of everyone can get the, to everywhere from the, there. The source of truth, right? <laughs> from there truth. you can go everywhere. But I would say that the first-time buyer's uh, information is is absolutely, you know, gold, literally gold. And um, in the current environment with um, the property ladder being so wonky, it's really, really important to, to make those those decisions and make them in the right mm. order such that um, you get the right outcome. And just to be clear, I'm not saying property is not, um, you know, something you should um, go into, but go into with your eyes open. And Veronica, I think you'd probably, uh, you know, second that. That's that's my motto, eyes wide open. All of our clients in my buyer's agency business, that's what we say to them. All your decisions will be with your eyes wide open. Absolutely. Well. Martin, it's always fun to have a chat with you. I do get a bit carried away and ranty at times, but as you can tell, I'm quite passionate about this stuff. So I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk to your audience. Oh, that's great. And, uh, you know, the passion comes through, but it's I'm passionate about this too for the same reasons, because if you make the right decisions, you can go one way. If you make the wrong decisions, you can go another way. And unfortunately, it's very hard to recover. So it these is. are critical conversations. Veronica, thank you very much. We'll do it again down the track. I'm sure we'll have more, more to chat about. Look forward to it. But uh, I'm going to take you offline now and, uh, and close the show. Thanks very much. Adios. Thank you very much. See ya. There you go, folks. Hope you enjoyed that. Um, always fun. There's uh, plenty to talk about with Veronica. And um, we will be back next week with Leif Van Onselen to talk about the latest from an economic perspective. Lots to talk about there, of course, with uh, some of the recent uh, changes to um, migration or not, gas prices or not, a lot of other things to talk about. So uh, mark your diary for that. And um, just before I go, the dogs are still there, still very much asleep. I haven't moved <laughs> the whole of the time that I've been on. Anyway, thank you very much for spending your Tuesday with us. Really appreciate it. Look forward to seeing you again next week and, of course, uh, on our recorded shows during the week. This is Martin North from Digital Finance Analytics signing off. See you next time. Cheerio.